Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, it's Basha here and you're listening to the Slow Newscast. Each week, as you know, we bring you an investigation that we've been working on in our newsroom, a story that gets at what's driving the news, not breaking news. And this week, I'm handing over to my colleague, Alexi Mostras, who is basically in podcasting terms now a celebrity uh, since the release of his series, Sweet Bobby, which if you haven't listened to, I think you should. And he'll absolutely hate me for saying this. Uh, but this week, Alexi, who is also our investigations editor, is telling a story about a young woman who found herself in a muse house in London, age 17, with a prince. This is the story of Virginia Roberts Dufresne. There are three places in the world where Virginia Roberts Jaffray says she was sexually abused by Prince Andrew. At a mansion in New York, on a private island in the US Virgin Islands, and here, in London, in the heart of Belgravia. You're probably imagining an area of tall stucco houses, tree-lined streets, designer shops, and high-end restaurants. And you'd be right. Belgravia is home to Harrods and Harvey Nichols. The streets are awash with Bentleys and Teslas. And there's a Gordon Ramsay restaurant just around the corner. But it's not all like that. The street I'm on reveals a more private side. It's tucked away, a muse street you wouldn't stumble on by accident. The houses here were once home to the horses and the servants of the big houses behind. Still expensive, of course, but definitely under the radar, away from prying eyes. Somewhere the powerful and the famous could go unnoticed. About halfway down Kinnerton Street is the house that I've come to see. It's a small three-story Victorian muse house, which was until recently owned by Ghislaine Maxwell. A house which is to take center stage in 2022 and all because of a 17-year-old girl from Palm Beach in Florida. What she says happened here more than 20 years ago could determine the fate of a prince and tarnish the reputation of his entire family. Because it was upstairs in this muse house that Virginia Roberts Jaffray says she handed her camera to Jeffrey Epstein, 
I have this little yellow Kodak camera and um, I asked Jeffrey to take a photo of me and Prince Andrew together. And right after that photo was taken... Gillen's literally just like right behind me. Gillen tells me, you're going to have to do for him what you do for Jeffrey. And right after that photo was taken, I was sexually abused by Prince Andrew for the first time. As you might expect, Prince Andrew denies it all. I, I can absolutely categorically tell you it never happened. This year, Virginia's accusations against the Duke might well come to court. It'll be a civil case, not a criminal one. But still, if Andrew doesn't settle the case, a US jury could finally decide what happened on the night of 10th of March 2001 in that Kinnerton Street news house. If Andrew is found to have sexually assaulted Virginia when she was only 17, she will have set off a bomb right at the heart of the royal family. To be honest, even before it gets to that point, Virginia's accusations have had a monumental effect. As we were recording this podcast, the Queen stripped Andrew of all his military titles, telling him he could no longer call himself His Royal Highness and banning him from carrying out public duties. It's a huge fall in grace for a man used to getting his own way. And all of this stems from one woman. So what I want to know is, how did a poor girl from Florida come to be in the heart of Belgravia, right next to three of the world's most powerful people? And how is it that 20 years later, she's the one in the strongest position of all? I do think he will stand trial, and I do think that Virginia will win, and he will be found liable uh, for sexually abusing her. I think she will win her case. I'm Alexi Mostris, and in this week's Slow Newscast, I'm looking into a modern-day David and Goliath battle. A woman abused versus a prince of the realm. Virginia Roberts Jaffray versus the Duke of York. It's been in the public domain for years, but that famous photo of Prince Andrew and a young Virginia Roberts, as she was then, still takes my breath away. It's taken at the top of the narrow staircase in Ghislaine's house in Belgravia. There's Prince Andrew, smiling towards the camera, a bit sheepishly maybe. Ghislaine stands behind him, wearing a tight-fitting white top. Her grin, it's a bit more wolfish. It's Virginia who you can't stop looking at. Beaming and beautiful, her blonde hair falling over her shoulders, she's standing next to the prince, and his chubby fingers are gripping her bare teenage waist, pulling her into his body. She's got her arm around him too, but the grip seems looser somehow. The first time in London, I was so young, Gillen woke me up in the morning and said, you're going to meet a prince today. I didn't know at that point that I was going to be trafficked to that prince. In August, Virginia filed a lawsuit in the US accusing Andrew of sexual assault and rape. And if the case goes to trial, that photo in Kinnerton Street will be a central piece of evidence. 
it seems to back up her claims, or at least some of them, because it places Andrew and her together in Ghislaine's house, although it's obviously not proof of sexual assault itself. Andrew's legal team have suggested that this photo might be faked, and in fact, this is part of a pattern, because Andrew has tried to undermine Virginia's story wherever he can. He's pointed out, for instance, that she was 16 when she was recruited by Epstein, not 15 like she first said. He's accused her of recruiting young girls for Epstein herself, saying Virginia was part of the problem. Through his lawyers, Andrew's even called her a working prostitute. Basically, Andrew is doing what sex defendants have done for generations, attack the victim. Here's why Virginia Jeffrey is important, maybe even more important than the case itself. She represents a new type of victim, someone who might not remember everything perfectly, but who can be believed in spite of that. Twenty years ago, Andrew's attacks on Virginia's credibility may well have been fatal, but the world has changed. We're living in a post-Me Too society. Power has shifted to some extent at least, away from defendants and towards victims. And that could be a massive problem for the prince. Good morning, good afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are. Good morning, good morning. Lisa Bloom is a US attorney who's represented eight of Epstein's victims. When Ghislaine Maxwell was convicted of sex trafficking this January, Lisa and her clients were watching closely. We were anxiously awaiting the verdict over the period of a week and a half. Uh, Ultimately, we got the word that the verdict was coming. We were very excited, and I thought we would have more time. We really only had about 10 minutes. It was a short time. And then, boom, there it was, convicted of five felonies out of the six. That's a big win. And I was in close contact with one of my clients, one of my Epstein clients in particular, and we were just uh, in shock and gasping for air. And uh, it was a very emotional moment. Ghislaine's lawyers followed roughly the same playbook as Andrew is now. They focused on undermining her accuser's credibility and memory. And it didn't work. And do you think that the Maxwell conviction is a kind of a sign that juries now, you know, maybe after Me Too, after various social movements, are more willing to accept that victims are imperfect? I do. You know, when I sat in that trial in the first week, the first accuser, Jane, was being cross-examined and she had to admit to a number of inconsistencies. And many of the reporters in the room with me were aghast and thought, oh, that's it. Prosecution has lost the case. It's over. This is terrible. They started writing articles. Prosecution has blown it. And I disagreed. But, you know, I have the different perspective of being a trial lawyer and understanding that human beings, we are all imperfect. We all make mistakes. And the fact that there were four accusers really helped. If there had been just one, uh, it might be different. But there were four. And uh, I think the fourth one was one that really put it away, uh, Annie Farmer, who, even though her accusations were relatively mild compared to the more serious types of sexual abuse that the others encountered, she had a lot of corroboration. She had her diary from the time she had her boyfriend, she had her mother to back her up. And so I thought that was just sort of a great, smart end to the prosecution's case. Ghislaine's conviction puts huge pressure on Andrew. For years, the Duke has tried to distance himself from Jeffrey Epstein by insisting that he was far better friends with Ghislaine, 
Epstein's girlfriend. But now that Ghislaine is a convicted sex trafficker, that line doesn't sound so good anymore. I do think that Prince Andrew should be quaking in his boots. First of all, he has admitted that Ghislaine Maxwell was a good friend of his. He tried to distance himself from Jeffrey Epstein by saying, well, I didn't really know him. It was Ghislaine Maxwell was the one that I knew. Okay, this is before she was indicted, of course. And he probably never thought she would be. And now here we are with her being a convicted sex trafficker. That's a problem for him. Second problem for him is we now see that a jury in the Southern District of New York same district where Virginia's case against him is pending, although hers is civil, the other one's criminal. Uh, but we see the jury in Southern District of New York is willing to convict even a wealthy profile person. And victims are being believed in a way that is different from even five years ago because we have had changed attitudes, which is largely attributable to the Me Too movement and the millions of victims male and female, who have come forward and said, this happened to me too, and it's really raised consciousness. The girl in the photograph is smiling. But at this point, in March 2001, she was already caught up in something pretty horrific. A web of abuse and sex trafficking, all orchestrated by Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. And Epstein was powerful, a billionaire with homes all over the world, Ghislaine was the daughter of a publishing baron and was a friend of royalty. But for victims, the pair seemed to have sought out their direct opposites. Young girls with no power, no status. Girls like Virginia. At seven, when I started getting abused by a family member, my childhood was quickly stolen from me. I just started kind of imploding. I would, you know, run away. I would be on the streets for days at a time. Virginia Dufresne was born Virginia Louise Roberts in Sacramento in California on the 9th of August, 1983. Her dad's called Skye. He's an odd jobs man. And her mum, Lynn, was a bank worker with a young son from a previous marriage. The family moved to Palm Beach when Virginia was four years old. In 2015, one of Virginia's aunts told a newspaper that she was taught to respect her parents don't talk back, don't do drugs, that sort of thing. But this relative stability was shattered when Virginia was about 12, when she was molested by a family friend. The abuser lived quite near to her, so to escape, Virginia went to live with that aunt, the same one that talked to the newspaper. She moved back to Florida when she was about 13, and by all accounts, she went off the rails. I was just so mentally scarred already at such a young age, and then I ran away from that. Virginia ran away from home. She was living on the streets. I found nothing on the streets except for um, hunger and pain and abuse, and, uh, and it was scary. I wanted to get out of it. We didn't really know that much about this period of Virginia's life until something explosive happened. A judge unsealed a draft memoir written by Virginia. It's called The Billionaire's Playboy Club, and it's never been published. But the draft version contains a huge amount of detail. Here's one story. It's summer 1997. Virginia is about 13, and she's sleeping rough in Miami Beach. One night, she asks some people at a bus stop for some change, but no one gives her anything. So she's sitting on the curb, crying, and then... A black stretch limo pulls up. 
and an old man with a cheesy smile asks her why she's so upset. That man, Virginia alleges, was a guy called Ron Eppinger. Eppinger tells her that he runs a model agency. In reality, he's a pimp. FBI records show that in 2001, a few years later, Eppinger pleaded guilty to human trafficking and money laundering. Eppinger's dead now, so we only have Virginia's account of what happened next. She says he did some horrible things to her, drugging her and sexually assaulting her, keeping her captive for months and pimping her out to clients. Until one morning, about six months later, the FBI raids the home of an older guy called Charlie. Virginia's asleep in his bed when they burst in. Her dad comes to pick her up from the police station. But he tells her that she can't stay at home. Her mum doesn't want that to happen. So Virginia agrees to spend a week in foster care while he sorts out a school for her to go to. She describes this place as being run by bullying staff. So Virginia runs away again and eventually makes it back to her parents' house. This time, her mum lets her stay. So after a year of hell, Virginia is back to enjoying barbecues and bonfire parties. And she's doing normal teenage things like going to school. And she gets a temporary job working at the spa in Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort in Palm Beach, which is where she met Ghislaine Maxwell. So I was pretty vulnerable by the time I get to Mar-a-Lago. It's tough to read about Virginia's early life, particularly when you know what's coming next, all those years with Epstein. And these experiences, I think that they're really important in understanding how Epstein was able to groom her so effectively. The timing of how Virginia met Epstein, it's tragic. Just as she was getting her life back on track, that's when Ghislaine took her opportunity. I'd only been at my job with Mar-a-Lago for a couple weeks, but it didn't take me that long to realize, like, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. My duties there were in the spa area, so I would hand out fresh towels. I loved working just with these you know, beautiful massage therapists, and they'd come and talk to me all the time, and I was really interested. So I went to a library, I rented a book on massage therapy. Ghislaine Maxwell approached me at the spa area. She was like this really bright Mary Poppins kind of a, a figure, and she said, oh, you're reading a book on massage therapy. And, you know, we started talking. And she goes, oh, you know what? I know this guy, there's an opportunity actually, if you want to become a real massage therapist, we can get you trained, you can come for the interview tonight, and if he likes you, then you'll be a real masseuse. And you'll get to see the world, and you'll get paid $200 per massage, and it, like, no alarm bells went off because it was this proper English lady who just looked so nice. I ran over to my dad who works on the tennis courts at Mar-a-Lago. And he knows I'm trying to fix my life up at that point, which is why he got me the job there. And uh, I said, you're not going to believe it, Dad. I just got offered a job, an interview. But if he likes me for the interview, then I'm going to be, uh, they're going to train me as a real masseuse, a real massage therapist. There was no sign at this moment that she was walking into a trap. My dad brought me over. And he shakes hand with Gilan, who promises that she'll take good care of me and she will have someone drive me home. She led me up a staircase and we made a right into Jeffrey's room and Jeffrey laying naked on the massage table. 
Jeffrey lifts his head up, looks at Guillen, Guillen looks at him, and I call it the Cheshire cat grin because his face just went like this. And it was like a nod of approval. Guillen got me quickly into like, here's the lotions, here's the oils, we're gonna each take half of his body so you can follow my instructions. It just looked like a legitimate massage. Then they also started asking me questions about my life. I really, really wanted this job, so I opened up to them. I said, look, this is an opportunity of a lifetime for me. I've been on the streets, I've been abused, and um, that's the worst thing that I could have done, because I just let them know that I'm vulnerable and um, I'm their perfect type. Ghislaine grabbed one foot, I grabbed the other, and she says, you always want to keep one hand on the body when you're massaging somebody. And then he turns over, and the entire thing changed. The abuse, Virginia says, began on that very first day. They said, take off your clothes. I had these little girl undies on, like little hearts on them, I remember, and they were laughing at that because they liked that. The younger you look, the better it is. It turned, into, it turned very sexual and... It was abuse straight away from both of them. I got paid $200 and the butler drove me home. The shame was immediate. I remember sitting at the bottom of my shower and crying my eyes out. I had been on the streets and I thought, you know, well, maybe this is the lesser of two evils. I had the promise of an education and maybe this is just how the world works. If abuse is so prevalent in my life, maybe that's just what it is. That's just life. Virginia is told to leave her job at Mar-a-Lago to work full-time for Epstein. The training started immediately. I mean, it was everything down to how to give a blowjob, how to be quiet, be subservient, give Jeffrey what he wants. A lot of this training came from Guilin herself. And being a woman, it kind of surprises you that a woman could actually let stuff like that happen, but not only let it happen, but to groom you into doing it. And then there's Jeffrey who's telling you, I want it this way, no, go slower and don't do that and do this. You're just thrown into a world that you don't understand and you don't know how to, you're screaming on the inside and you don't know how to let it come out. And you just become this numb figure who refuses to feel and refuses to speak and refuses, all you do is obey. That's it. And eventually it led to, well, now we're going to experiment and we're going to try you with another guy. Soon, she says she was loaned out to Epstein's friends, businessmen, celebrities, politicians. And flight logs prove that she traveled many times on Epstein's private jet, known as the Lolita Express. It's called Lolita Express for a reason. That was a vessel for him to be able to abuse girls and get away with it without anybody being alarmed or any alarm bells going off. It was all the same no matter where you went. All Jeffrey cared about was go find me more girls. To me, still to this day, it is my biggest shame that I carry around that I will never get rid of. And I'm really, really sad that I brought other girls my age and even younger into a world that they should have never been introduced to. Flight logs show that in March 2001, when Virginia was 17, she was taken to London with Epstein and Ghislaine. And that's how, she says, she came to be standing next to Andrew in that small muse house in Belgravia.
quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I can't do Virginia's story justice in just one podcast episode. I mean, we're talking about 20 years from 2001 to today. But in brief, when she was 19, Epstein sent her to Thailand to take a massage course. Instead, she found a husband and moved to Australia. Have a nice life, Epstein said, hanging up the phone when she told him. And Virginia didn't hear from him or Ghislaine again until about six years later. And I get a phone call from Ghislaine one day in Australia. I'm in Australia. I was like, how the hell did she just find me? Like, I've been out of their life for so long. What's going on? She's like, have you talked to anybody? Have you told anybody what's happened? Like, you know, have you reported us or anything? And I said, no. I haven't spoken to anybody. Okay, good. You stay like that. You stay quiet. The next day, Jeffrey calls me with his lawyer on the phone. And he asks me the same questions. Um, have you talked to anybody? Are you going to report me? Are you going to talk to anybody? And I'm like, where is this all coming from? Like, what is going on? The next day, I get another phone call. And this time, it's from an FBI agent. Like, hi, I'm blah, blah, blah from the FBI. Have you given Jeffrey Epstein a blowjob? Uh, did you have a shower with Jeffrey Epstein? Did you ever bring any girls over for Jeffrey Epstein? I'm like, I don't even know who you are. I mean, unless you can come over here and show me some official documentation that says that you're with the FBI, I am not saying a word to you. And about six months later, I get a knock at the door, and it's the Australian Federal Police. A year later, in 2008, Epstein struck a plea deal with US prosecutors. It was, by all accounts, pretty extraordinary. Despite a mountain of evidence that he'd abused multiple girls, Epstein served only 18 months in prison. Most days, a driver would pick him up from a private wing in the prison and drive him to his office, where he was allowed to work. Despite the sweetheart deal, Epstein's fortunes didn't last long. Victims soon started bringing cases against him, including Virginia, 
who in 2009 accepted a $500,000 settlement. Then, in 2015, Virginia sued Ghislaine for defamation, and that case was settled too. And now, her focus is on Andrew. Virginia is on a mission. She has a real strong sense of what is justice, what the victims of Jeffrey Epstein deserve, and how they've been let down by the justice system. This is Tara Palmieri, a journalist who's spent quite a lot of time with Virginia. They traveled across the U.S. together for a podcast. Virginia was trying to track down anyone who might have witnessed Epstein's abuse, people who worked for him, chefs, drivers, that sort of thing. Anything to try and corroborate her story. For these women, they need those third parties, often men, to verify their accounts. Because all you're hearing is, this is Virginia's side of the story, and a bunch of women who are just like her with similar stories. And here is a denial from a very famous man saying she is a liar. And I'm sure that's terrifying. Tara has no doubts about Virginia's intelligence. She actually just has this amazing, vivacious personality. She's very charming. She's a laugh. Like, she's really fun, and she's very articulate. She's super smart. But she's vulnerable, too. I saw her while we were traveling around, really breaking down, like being triggered by things that she saw. When we passed by the private airport in Palm Beach, she just got like a pang in her stomach and she felt ill. And she just got like emotionally, like her body reacted to what that reminded her of. You know, it's like, it's so visceral. On the podcast, Virginia and Tara knock on the door of one Alacy. He was a housekeeper who used to work for Epstein in Palm Beach. Unlike other witnesses who just turned them away, Alessi at least let Virginia into his house. Tara was annoyed about what she saw as Alessi's slipperiness. His story kept changing. He acknowledged there was abuse, but he couldn't do anything about it. You know, he would deny things and then acknowledge them, and he just was all over the place. I felt like he was just not a reliable witness, and I didn't know that he was a good guy. I think if I was Virginia, I'd be mad at him a little bit, right? Like, you pick me up from school, you drive me around, you pick up other girls, you paid me money, you must have known what's happening, right? But instead, at the end, she gave him a big hug and was like, I want to see you again. Like, I'd love to see your art. I want to spend time with you. And it just made me really angry whole thing and I said it in the car and for her she was like you don't get it like so many people just slam the door in my face just to get a little bit of an acknowledgement is huge progress for Virginia it seems is not having a door slammed in your face what sense did you get of of her determination to kind of keep on going like for, for a whole decade and more yeah she just won't back down like I mean people would say oh you got your money be quiet right like that's go away. But it's not about that for her. It really is about justice. And I think that's what motivates her. You couldn't just see it when she speaks. I mean, she's very eloquent. She's doing what she sees as her life's work. She's made her suffering into something bigger. If Virginia's case against Andrew goes ahead this year, and there's a strong chance that it will, then that night in Kinnerton Street, 
on the 10th of March 2001, will be at the centre of everything. Both parties have given accounts of what happened, not in a court of law, but to journalists. While Virginia has spoken out many times, Andrew has done so only once, to Newsnight, the BBC's current affairs show. He was questioned by Emily Maitlis about his relationships with Epstein, Ghislaine, and with Virginia herself. And let's just say, the interview did not go well. There was no apology, no sense of real regret about his friendship with Epstein, and some seriously bizarre excuses for why he said Virginia's account just didn't add up. Here's Virginia's side of the story, and Andrew's. I first met Prince Andrew March 10th, 2001, in London at Ghislaine's townhouse. I have no recollection of ever meeting this lady. None whatsoever. He knocked on the door, he came inside Ghislaine's townhouse, and we're sitting there having tea. And Andrew's talking about Fergie, which is his ex-wife at that point, and Ghislaine's bad-mouthing Fergie as well, and Epstein's just socially awkward, so I think he's just laughing about everything, and I'm sitting there, like I was always told to do, is sit there, don't talk, unless you're talked to, and be polite and laugh at everything that someone says when they're trying to be funny. It seemed like friends just catching up. Yelin has this favorite guessing game that she does. She goes to Prince Andrew, how old do you think Virginia is? And he said 17. And she's like, oh, you're right. And you know, they like made a little joke about it. And he's like, oh, my daughters aren't far from your age. You know, my daughter's a little bit younger than you. We went out for the night. Club Tramp in London. She dined with you. She danced with you. You bought her drinks. You were in Tramp nightclub in London. And she went on to have sex with you in a house in Belgravia belonging to Ghislaine Maxwell. Didn't happen. Do you remember her? No. I, I, I have no recollection of ever meeting her. Um, I'm almost, in fact, I'm convinced um, that I was never in trance with her. Prince Andrew got me alcohol. It was in the VIP section. It was, I'm pretty sure it was vodka. There are a number of things that are wrong with that story. One of which is that, is that I don't know where the bar is in, in um, tramps. Um, uh, I don't drink. Um, I, I don't think I've ever bought a drink in tramps uh, whenever I was there. Prince Andrew's like, let's dance together. And I was like, okay. Do you remember dancing at Tramp? No. That couldn't have happened because the date that is being suggested, I was at home with the children. You know that you were at home with the children. Mm. Was it a memorable night? On that particular day that, that, that um, uh, we now understand is the date, which is the 10th of March, uh, I was at home. Uh, I was with the children. I'd taken Beatrice to uh, a Pizza Express in Woking for a party at, a, I suppose, sort of four or five in the afternoon. Why would you remember that so specifically? Why would you remember a, a Pizza Express birthday and being at home? Because going to Pizza Express in Woking is an unusual thing for me to do. And he dances and he's profusely sweating over me and it was disgusting. There's a slight problem with, 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 with the sweating um, because uh, I, I, 
have a peculiar medical condition, which is that I don't sweat, um, or I didn't sweat at the time, and that was, oh, actually, yes, I didn't sweat at the time because I um, ha had suffered what I would describe as an overdose of adrenaline in the Falklands War when I was shot at. Uh, and I simply, it, it, was, it, was, it was almost impossible for me to, to, to sweat. We get back to the townhouse and we go upstairs. I have this little yellow Kodak camera and um, I ask Jeffrey to take a photo of me and Prince Andrew together. Again, I have absolutely no memory of that photograph ever being taken. Do you recognize yourself in oh, the photo? Yeah, it's pretty difficult not to recognize yourself. Your friend suggested that the photo is fake. I think it's uh, from the investigations that we've done, you can't prove whether or not that photograph is uh, faked or not because it is a photograph of a photograph of a photograph. I have simply no recollection of a photograph ever being taken. I don't remember going upstairs uh, in the house because that photograph is taken upstairs. Gilan's literally just like right behind me. Gilan tells me, you're gonna have to do for him what you do for Jeffrey. And right after that photo was taken, I was sexually abused by Prince Andrew for the first time. You don't recall meeting Virginia Roberts, dining with her, yep. dancing with her at Tramp, yep. or going on to have sex with her yes. in a bedroom in a house in Belgravia. I, I can absolutely categorically tell you it never happened. Virginia's lawyers have focused on the Newsnight interview as a key piece of evidence. They've asked the Duke to provide proof that he couldn't sweat and that he was in Woking collecting his daughter when he says he was. You'd think that Andrew would have some sort of proof of this, medical, anecdotal, but so far, his lawyers have handed nothing over. More than the sweating, more even than the visit to Pizza Express, there is one other part of the Newsnight interview that I find extraordinary. Now, I went there with the sole purpose of saying to him that because he had been convicted, it was inappropriate for us to be seen together. I felt it was the, it was the honourable and right thing to do. And I... I admit fully that, 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 that my judgment was probably coloured by my um, tendency to be too honourable. That's Andrew's explanation for why he visited Epstein in New York in 2010 after he knew that Epstein had been convicted for child sex offences. But is it really believable that he flew more than 3,000 miles just to tell a convicted paedophile that he had to break off his friendship? And if so, that doesn't explain why he stayed in Epstein's house for four days, on his own, and agreed to be guest of honour at a swanky dinner party. I spoke to someone who knows Andrew, and they suggested that we shouldn't expect royalty to behave like the rest of us. And they added that society's perspectives on who was and who wasn't a good person had changed since 2010. Well, I buy that up to a point, but maybe Virginia's lawsuit will reveal other, more sensitive motives behind the Duke's trip to New York. After all, Epstein helped Sarah Ferguson, the Duke's ex-wife, 
settle some of her debts in 2011. So maybe we'll find out that the trip was more about money than friendship. When Virginia launched her civil lawsuit against the Duke of York in August last year, she filed the case in the Southern District of New York. And the claim was made under something called the Child Victims Act, a New York law giving victims of child sex abuse more time to sue. Now, it's hard to know how much influence Andrew has over his hotshot lawyers, but one tactic they used to try to get the case struck out has troubled many legal experts. Andrew's lawyers tried to argue that the whole Child Victims Act was unconstitutional, and if they'd succeeded, it may have prevented other child abuse victims from coming to court. That's not a good look for a royal, you might think, especially since Andrew was once patron of the NSPCC's full-stop campaign against child abuse. How dare they make that argument? For many years, people who were victims of child sexual abuse could not bring a case against the the perpetrator unless they did it within a very short period of time, I think approximately three years from when they turned 18, so 21. Okay, most victims are not ready yet to do that. They're in their 30s, 40s, whatever age. Some people take these secrets to their graves. So Only recently has New York expanded that law and said, victims now have more time. If you were a child victim, you can now come forward and bring a case even many years later. That's the law that Virginia is using to sue Prince Andrew for, she says, abusing her when she was underage. Okay. His lawyers in trying to get her case thrown out have argued that that entire law should be held unconstitutional. And if they had won that argument, the law would have been struck down in its entirety. And not only would Virginia's case be thrown out, but other victims coming after her seeking justice also would not have the chance to use that law to seek justice. So I thought that was shameful. I'm not willing to say, oh, that was just his lawyers. The lawyers work for him, and he should never have allowed them to make that argument. It seems like at every turn, from his Newsnight interview to the hardball tactics of his lawyers, Andrew is a step behind. Not only a step behind Virginia, but a step behind public opinion. His latest attempt to get the case thrown out has just failed. A judge in New York has just made a ruling which will allow the civil lawsuit to proceed to trial. And that decision means that over the next few months, Andrew will either have to settle the case or start disclosing documents to Virginia's team. Documents like diary entries, emails, medical records, anything relevant to the case. So I would want to talk to security officers who accompanied him on the famous night when he went to the Pizza Express. And let's see security logs, let's see calendars, let's see whatever documents exist that document where Prince Andrew is at any given time, which I'm sure is kept to some extent. Calendars, journals, Uh, diaries, schedules, as the British would say. Virginia Giuffray has hinted that she will refuse any purely financial settlement, suggesting that unless Andrew also apologises for his behaviour, the case is going to proceed to trial. And 
let's pause for a moment to appreciate how extraordinary that situation would be. A prince of the realm, the queen's favorite son, in a civil court accused of sexual assault and rape. So what next? Well, the judge set a clear timetable. He says he wants depositions done by mid-July. And what that means is that Andrew would have to give a formal interview to Virginia's lawyers under oath. If he doesn't want to answer a question, he'll have to invoke the Fifth Amendment, something that American courts allow defendants to do in order to stop them incriminating themselves. Just imagine Prince Andrew, one step removed from the Queen herself, saying on camera and under oath, I plead the Fifth. I think his attorneys have shown that they're going to raise any argument they can possibly think of no matter whether it's a strong argument or a weak argument. That's not a good practice, in my opinion. Uh, I try not to raise weak arguments in front of a judge because I think it affects my credibility. You always want to look reasonable in front of the judge. Um, But I think that's what's next. So the discovery phase generally takes nine to 12 months longer if there's a lot of disputes that arise. So I think that's what's coming. If all this does come to trial, who's going to win? Well, that's hard to predict. In this case, there are inconsistencies on both sides. And that's hardly surprising. The alleged events happened 20 years ago, and apart from that photo, there's little else to go on bar memories. For years, this sort of classic he-said-she-said scenario would favour the defendant. After all, it's up to claimants to prove their case. But now, today, I can't imagine that Andrew is feeling that confident. If a jury decides that Andrew has committed sexual assault, then in 2022, there'll only be one person left standing, reputation intact, out of the four people in the Muse house in Belgravia on that night in 2001. I do think he will stand trial, and I do think that Virginia will win, and he will be found liable uh, for sexually abusing her. It's a long road between here and there, But what I see in Virginia and her attorneys is a team that's very committed to fighting this to the end. And what I see in Prince Andrew is uh, a bad witness, a a guy who uh, makes a lot of mistakes when he's in the hot seat. So that's why I come to the conclusion that I think she will win her case. For the Queen, this year was supposed to be a moment of triumph. Next month, she'll become the first British monarch to celebrate a platinum jubilee. That's 70 years on the throne. Now, a sex trial involving her second son risks overshadowing, or at least tainting, a lifetime of service. She has tried to limit the damage by taking away Andrew's titles and demoting him to a private citizen. Yet how effective that will be remains to be seen. It's still possible to think, though, that the institution she leads The royal family itself, with its palaces and secret trusts and sense of privacy, may be partly responsible for the mess that Andrew is in today. Just as Epstein's wealth and power allowed him to get away with abuse for so long, if Andrew is found to have assaulted Virginia, the hidden power of the monarchy may have helped him to do it. That is an uncomfortable idea. But it's clear that Andrew never operated in a vacuum. He is, like it or not, intimately woven into the fabric of the royal family and its establishment power. And 
as the Windsors prepare themselves for the Queen's death, and for Charles to become king, that's a horrible legacy to contend with. But if Virginia's case means anything at all, it's a sign that that sort of power and privilege are no longer as important as they once were. This episode was written and presented by me, Alexi Mostris. It was produced by Katie Gunning and Xavier Greenwood. Sound design is by Tom Kinsella. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. Now, if you'd like to access all of our podcasts early and ad-free, or you'd like to get access to our member-only content, our data journalism, our events, then I have a code for you. You can go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A-5-0. Thank you as ever for listening, and I'll see you next week. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.